0: This is a familiar story. People are moved from crumbling inner-city tenements to purpose-built estates on the edge of the city, except all that's there are houses. No shops, no community centres and poor transport infrastructure. It certainly happened in Dublin, but it also happened in Glasgow. As a way of tackling the lack of shops, repurposed ice cream vans began running routes through the estates, selling pretty much everything. But so profitable were they that rows erupted between the van drivers from vandalism... To the death of a family, a two-part BBC documentary tells the story of the ice cream wars. The second part airs tomorrow night on BBC Two at ten past nine. We're joined by the director Robert neil Afternoon, Robert. Afternoon. Uh, could you start by describing to us th- this mo- this great movement of people in Glasgow when they were tearing down the slums? Where did they send them to, and what were those places like? Um, so
1: it it goes back almost to. The second world war really but there was a there was a plan in place essentially to move people out into these outer estates and at one point there was a plan to really kind of demolish much of the center of glasgow but um they were they built these kind of est- large estates out in the outskirts of the city and people were going to be moved from the tenements which are still kind of uh, a lot of people still associate glasgow with those tenements because they ultimately survived but um the plan had been to move everybody out to these estates, um, and when they did that, um, it, it was quite a flawed process, as became evident as time went on. The there was plenty of homes, um, but there were, there wasn't really the facilities for people.
0: Uh, were there uh, transport routes or anything of that nature?
1: The tra- transport was there was transport, but it wasn't um, it wasn't great transport. But it was much more about the fact that. Um, there were no shops after six pm. There was a, there was a, in an effort to curb drinking, they didn't they didn't put pubs in these estates and things like that. Hmm. But what you what you that led to just discontent ultimately. And what it also led to, in in the case that we look at, is that things like ice cream vans became um, they were essential, but also they became almost too popular for their own good in a way. But they they were they were selling everything. They were selling cigarettes, bread. You know various things, and they became so lucrative they became targeted by criminals. Ultimately, yeah. and um, how many of them were there? It would be hard to put an estimate on it, but there were but distinct routes were kind of laid out. What was what was starting to happen was that um, more than one company was trying to run the same route. So the might a route might be like three or four streets. Um, it really wasn't a massive a massive stretch of of, of terrain or area. But what would happen is that um, you would end up with three or four vans, and companies would double up to try and squeeze out the other company and things like this. And they'd be squeezing in in front of each other at each stop and things like this. And that escalated as we as we show in the programme, it became you know you started to see uh, think It was silly things like they would spray raspberry sauce on their opponent's window, so the guy would be trying to desperately trying to wipe this uh, sauce off his. Off his windscreen, while you shot off and got the customers further down the further down the road, but then it then it becomes much more sinister.
0: Yeah, I mean, it did escalate to uh, committing acts of uh, violence on the the vans themselves, and ultimately people losing their lives because of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was becoming uh, the van certainly. You know, it went from spraying raspberry sauce to smashing win- windows and mirrors in and things like this. Um, and then ultimately rivalries got so intense and there was efforts to, you know, really push other drivers off, um, off the road. Um, and that ultimately led to, um, well, one particular case, which um, is, is what the series is largely, uh, certainly episode one is largely um, yeah. built around, which was uh, the death w- of w- Andrew Doyle w- and his family. Were, were, there, were there criminals involved
0: with these vans? I mean, obviously there was criminal acts, uh, as, you, as you just outlined there.
1: Yes, I think it um I think they became so this is this is a matter of kind of huge debate as to some people are absolutely convinced that, you know, drugs were being sent sold off these vans as well. Um, others, you know, people who've really studied this case claim that um they have never seen any evidence that drugs were sold on the vans, but but they were in and the of themselves very lucrative and they did attract um people who saw an opportunity shall we say
0: yeah and so the, the the people who died what were the circumstances of their deaths
1: so andrew doyle um was a driver um of a van he was he was brought in almost as a as a, so one there was a there was a driver working for um a company called marchetti brothers which was one of the the ice cream Uh, companies in Glasgow um, and he was in an effort to um, keep his run as it were um, he was given a second van um, and he brought in Andrew Doyle who was quite a young man at the time um, to drive the second van so Andrew Doyle I think had previously been um, the boy in the van which was so there would be the driver and then there would be the boy who would be on the counter who would serve people and things like that he'd got to an age where he could drive so he was given a van to drive um, and he was kind of received intimidation um, and, you know, it was being it was being reported to the police by his boss who features in the, well, the boss of Marquette, uh, rather, I should say, who features in the documentary. Um, and it was escalating and he was attacked. Um, and then one night his family's home, it was a large family and several siblings. There was nine people in the house on that night um, across three generations of his family. The home was set alight and six people died, and uh, there were three survivors, but six six of those, ranging from an 18-month-old baby to Andrew mm. Doyle's father, who I think was in his 50s, but they, they didn't die immediately, they died due to the inhalation, so it actually, it, it was happening gradually over several days, so they were in hospital, you see you see some of them walk out, including Andrew Doyle himself, you see them walk out in photographs from it, and, and you know, you would think as they got into the ambulance, right, he's clearly suffered there, but he's... He look looks like he's going to be fine but as it was the because the smoke had got into them it affected them further down the line so um the, several members of the family died in the days after
0: did the police so, treat treat this as a criminal act uh, from the start
1: uh, yes i think it was i think it was always clear that it was it was an act of he, they were on a they were in a flat in um on the third floor there was really no way out because the fire was started at the door. So there was really no... One brother did jump out the window, um, but there was really no way to escape easily. So fire fire officers had to get in and kind of rescue some members of the family, but some uh, couldn't yes. um, couldn't be.
0: Yeah. Now, the, the, I suppose this was complicated by the fact that even though the police saw this as a criminal act, the relationship between the community and the police wasn't great, to put it mildly.
1: Um, I, I can't speak... Too deeply on that, but I think I think that's probably fair to say that it would have been difficult for people probably to um, tell the police too much about what they knew at the time.
0: Yeah. Now, though, did they come up with their main suspect pretty quickly?
1: Um, they they came up with um, a number of suspects. So ultimately, there was a court case later on where seven seven men were in the dock, um, and it it was quite. Um, bizarre, I mean, the scale of it was huge, um and it was it, it garnered a lot of attention because at this point it was Scotland's I think it was the greatest mass murder in Scottish history at this point. so um, and that that stayed until the Lockerbie disaster essentially. but um, there were seven men in the dock. they each had their own um solicitors. I think I'm right in saying that John Smith, who went on to be the labor leader, um, was, one of the, was one of the solicitors but one of our contributors a guy called Ken Smith who reported on every day of that trial he described it as being like a sea of wigs because it was just lawyers um, uh, and advocates um, everywhere um, so it was a very complicated case and it started out as a straightforward accusation of murder and eventually evolved as time went on because it was very hard to pin that because it was, it was almost impossible but well, it proved to be impossible to prove who who lit the match itself at the door so it evolved into conspiracy to murder um and it settled on two of the seven men being charged with that Uh, uh, being convicted of that rather
0: yeah uh, but those two men denied it
1: yes um very very actively so tc campbell um uh, thomas campbell um they they both did it in a different way. They both went to jail. Um, I think they both tried to have an initial appeal that was rejected, and then they they basically went down two different paths in, in terms of keeping their um, their uh, case in the public eye. So Thomas Campbell um took hunger strikes, he um, he grew a very long beard, he, he kind of um later on he would shoot um video in his from his cell um, discussing his campaign. Joe Steele on the other hand, further down the line, would um, would escape. So he escaped three times and most famously he, and I think on his uh, second escape he actually glued himself to the gates of Buckingham Palace. Hmm. Um so it was quite uh it was quite. A, this is a, this is all a little bit before my time as a young person. I think, I, you know, I was born in the eighties, but it was only really in the nineties, later on, when I was kind of coming into my teenage years, that I would see these guys on the television all the time, and they were getting an enormous amount of attention. And for me, like quite a young teenager, you're sort of assumed that, you know, you you grow up very naively thinking that these things are always. Done correctly, and the police must must have known. But these men were making such an incredible noise um, about their case that you were you were kind of left confused. So I was quite. I've always been quite fascinated by the whole story. But as with many people, until I, I think we've told it quite comprehensively in this series. But as with a lot of people in Scotland, one of the big f- feedbacks I've had from people who've watched it has been that. They didn't realise quite the scale of it and all of the events that took place. Mm-hmm.
0: Episode 2 of, of The Ice Cream Wars is on BBC Two this Wednesday at 10 past nine. Robert Neal is series producer and director. Robert, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Cheers. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.
0: Weekdays at 2 pm. On News Talk.